Greetings. I am X51. You are listening to the Bullpen Bullets Podcast. Danger is gone. The crazy skank left me for a broken down rust bucket named Albert and that's not nosed kid with this speech impediment. Who needs her, anyway? I think she gave me a virus. At least I still have Vince and David Price. Join us now as we return to their discussion on Joss Whedon and John Cassidy's Astonishing X-Men issues 7 to 12. Anyone know Joe Casta's number? Okay out there at Marvelland, face front, this is Stan Lee speaking. Hey, who made you a disc jockey, lady? Well, well, Jolly Jack Herbie. By the way, Jack, the readers have been complaining about Sue's hairdo again. What am I supposed to do? Be a hairdresser? Next time I'll draw her bald-headed. What do we know at the end of these six issues? Ord's been defeated. Now probably in the custody of Sword. Yep. Peter is back. Yes. Something Kitty's is... keeping an eye on uh, on Emma, and right. other eyes are with Emma because we see that Emma's not exactly on the up and up. Um, the virus is postponed, put on hold, which right. means we'll probably be seeing that again. Uh, our buddy Hank is devolving and at odds on whether or not he should investigate this cure for himself. Right. And our buddy Wing has been depowered by Ord. And as of issue number seven, the little uh, scamp is uh, a little bit uh, despondent a over little, that, little, huh? Yeah, a little depressed, a little melancholy. Yeah, so that's where we're going to pick up. Um, issue seven starts off. We we have we have uh, our buddy Wing investigating a pretty steep looking cliff there. Yeah, he's lost his identity by losing his power. He stripped him of what he thought he was, and he's you know wondering whether or not I should just uh, trash this whole thing. You know, you got to feel for the guy a little bit. A little bit, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's powers kick in when you hit puberty. And uh, you figure he's at least 16, maybe 17, the most. So he's he's had a few years with these and with with, with his powers, and he's been enjoying it. Now they're gone. You know, it was it was cold turkey. There was no weaning yourself off. There was no, you know, well let me let me think about it. Let me see how it feels. But no, they're they're gone, and he's the world's kind of done a 180. And then we have the X Men taking a more active role in the superhero community yes yes indeed and it, that that that's that was nice to see it was nice to see them out and about and in action and uh and and i, I really get a kick out of uh out of old pd uh windsurfing well i mean that's that's a a brilliant little piece of uh 
characterization there. The guy was imprisoned for how long? Test, yes. Tested, pulled apart, and he's, he's, I mean, it's, it's no wonder he feels confined. He wants to get the hell out and get in the open spaces, and that's another Whedonism there for you. He just takes what the guy went through and uses it to um, flesh out the character a little bit more and get him out in the open. That's, that's and, perfect. And we find out later that um, there's one person that thinks because of this, probably, you know, partly because of him wanting to be outside of the jet, um, an old friend of his thinks that uh, she's crowding him. And, uh, and, yeah. and we'll get to where he, uh, where he actually uh, tells her, no, it's quite the opposite. Right. And um, did you notice the same little bit of irony in this issue that I picked up on? As far as their first... The, their nemesis? <laughs> yeah. And if, if if you didn't get it, the point was kind of hammered home by the guys that showed up late to the party. Right. I mean, what better way to illustrate that the X-Men are now becoming an active superhero group by having them go up against the Mole Man's monster? <laughs> it's it's like Fantastic Four number one all over again. Yeah. And And it's a nice little touch that they actually bump into the FF while they're doing this. Again, geez, look at the way uh, Cassidy draws the FF. I would not mind seeing him on the regular book. No. If, I mean, it'd probably come out, you know, tri-monthly, but... <laughs> well, give him give him one of your uh, Fantastic Four the end minis that you uh, yeah. that, that want. That'd be, that'd be really cool. He draws a mean thing. Yes, that, he does. And excellent. And Susie, Susie's got it going on with the dimple and the... <laughs> yeah, and... and, and Reed is all scholarly like oh, and, and, and Johnny looks like that hot rod youngster. That kinda reminds me of that burn era Johnny Storm. And in the one uh page where the FF are leaving, that little squished up mouth he's got on Johnny mm-hmm, there, mm-hmm. that goes back to your Kevin Maguire comparison there a little yes. bit. Yes, yes. But uh yeah, this is a, a re- you know, it's in terms of the dangerous arc as a whole, this issue doesn't really do anything but set it up on the last page but in terms of showing the x-men taking a more active role yeah it it really hammers that home and how about the neat little one-page bits of characterization going on during the battle yes that was nice that was nice just amazing you got peter beating the snot pretty much literally out of the (laughs) uh the mole man's monster and then he's 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 thinking about you know how odd it is that He's back and hearing Scott in his head, and yeah. and he's a little bit taken aback by the whole thing. And then his last words are, you know, I really should concentrate on what the heck I'm doing here. Yeah. And then on the very next page, you got Kitty going through, you know, her battle thoughts, but she's thinking about Peter more. Like, did I ruin this with the guy? Am I coming on too strong? And it's really odd. Her last thought is the exact same as, as Peter's. You know, I should really be concentrating here because, you know, I, this is battle after all. It's, yes. It's just neat how Whedon tied these two together, another bond between them. Like, they almost think the same way. Right, right, right. And then you got Logan, completely silent, bouncing around, whacking off buildings, and, you know, I really like beer. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah, if if there was ever a better way to show that this guy operates completely on instinct. He doesn't think, he just does. You know, that's that's a great, great page. Uh, it's a joint effort. Whedon pulled back a little bit and let Cassidy do his thing, and Cassidy just 
shined. It's yeah, a, not, it, it's real easy to say that. Yeah, Cassidy has has um he's got a real nice handle on the Wolverine character. I mean, just the way just the way he. I mean, Logan looks great out of the costume, but when he's wearing the the, the tights, it, it's a great looking Wolverine, and you really can't just say that Cassidy does a great Wolverine without also saying that Whedon does as well because even though even though he doesn't have a bunch of lines you know what he when, when he does have something to say it makes sense for the character and 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 Whedon has a great handle on on the character as well he knows Wolverine yeah and uh, it may not be his favorite character in this run but I think it's one of them you can't go wrong with Logan he works no? yeah. yes you need the scrapper Yep. So the FF and the X-Men beat this thing back into the ground. And then we have our buddy, uh, Special Agent Brand, who seems yes. to have a bit of a past. Yeah, yeah. According to our, our tickets to the gun show we saw there, the um, Anna and Grace. Yeah, so I'm, yeah, I'm thinking maybe this woman has a couple of kids. And maybe those are the ones she wants to protect. Who knows? Very well could be. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe, I mean, yeah, it's... It could be anything. It could be. It could be. She couldn't protect them at one time. It could be that. Um, right. Maybe there's a tie between the Green Locks, uh, Ord, and Breakworld, and and her kids. I mean that the possibilities are, are close to endless. Right. And I don't think, as of the most recent issue, we're given any insight as to why her hair is green. I don't. No. I don't remember anything. No. But um, she is brought up on charges for overstepping her bounds, and she basically beats her superiors back into a corner and by telling them, you know what, take me off the position. I don't care. You know, I'll leave or, um, instructions on what to do with my body. This is who I am. You're going to take me out of this. I don't want to. I'm gone. See ya. Right. Yep. So, I mean, that's a pretty ballsy way of approaching it, but it seemed to have worked. Oh, yes. And as the issue closes, we find out Wing was not out in the wild. He was in the danger room, and he just happened to take his life. Yeah, yeah. And which is interesting because all the X-Men comics I've ever read, the danger room really wasn't designed to... There were fail-safes in place so that a death couldn't happen, either by accident or on purpose. Right. Well, the upgrade is relatively recent. In terms, okay. in terms of X-Men continuity, I mean, the original Danger Room was nothing more than, you know, the moving panels and the, the, the flame jets. The spikes, the flying throwers, right. Yeah, and it was just basically a souped-up gym, really. And then once Professor X tweaked it with the Shi'ar technology, that's when, you know, because in one of the issues, I think it was Emma who says that she was aware of all Shi'ar technology having a certain level of... Uh, like art- life sentience. Uh, right, artificial intelligence. And I think that's when... When they started using the hard light holograms, Right, that's when this started. So, And you're right, I don't remember anyone ever dying in there, but that's the whole point of this, this little exercise here. That uh, Wing couldn't take it anymore, dropped himself off a, a digital cliff, and he's now an X-Wing... <laughs> well, hello, bulletin, bullpen, bulletins. It's uh, twelve oh eight a.m. in Sacramento, California, and this is Mr. Stephen Earl calling you. Just to let you all know that 
your podcast is my favorite podcast. And uh, last Saturday I was on the train for a couple hours, listened to the Astonishing X-Men podcast, got home and reread the entire run. Yeah, I really don't have much to say, except you guys are doing a damn good job. And I'm sitting here drinking Pabst in my home, calling and leaving a message for hundreds, if not thousands, if not millions of comic geeks I'll never meet. All in all, a good evening. In the opening of issue eight, the something KOs all the psychics. Emma and her little uh, trio of cuckoos and right. bl- and blindfold and a bunch of other psi based mutants get effectively shut off by something. Yes. You know, we get a little glimpse of what this may be by a a burst of energy from the danger room door. But as far as we're concerned, we have no idea at this point what in the hell's going on. We're in the same boat as as the as the the aware X Men. Wasn't there also something else going on either? down south or yeah we get jimmy bob and his buddy billy ray <laughs> and, you know checking out something that's casting a red glow and you know saying they're going to be rich and we eventually find out severely battle damaged sentinel who has suddenly been activated yes and is in search for something he calls his lord and i'm going to get into this a uh, whole lot deeper after we finish the rundown on the six issues because like the first six issues of Whedon's X-Men run, there's a lot more going on to Dangerous than meets the eye. Yeah, I, mean, I was I was just looking at the pretty pictures and enjoying the words and, and you just went off in a, in a whole other direction which may very well be exactly what they had in mind and if it ain't, they did a damn good job of hiding it. Yeah. And made, I think it's going to give a lot of people pause to think. That's my curse. I, I, I just can't look at anything on the surface. I, I see, I may see the skin, but it's got maggots underneath it, you know. <laughs> so, I got a feeling I'm going to be going through, rereading a lot of old my comics. Uh, and, and it's odd because when I first read Dangerous Complete, 7 to 12, you know, I thought it was a really good story. It was very enjoyable. But when I was done, you know, you get this nagging little suspicion that there may be something going on You by the the imagery he used and the terminology. And then when we decided on doing the spotlight on this book, naturally I read it again. And then, you know, when you read it with a more discerning eye, because you, you have to talk about this stuff and to get to talk about it, you have to have an opinion and to formulate an opinion, you got to pay attention. So, right. so I'm really digging into this thing. I'm like, holy shit, this is pretty damn deep. Uh, a rose is never a rose in Vince's hands. It's in my mouth when I'm dancing, but... <laughs> All right, so uh, the Sentinel flicks on, starts looking for something called his Lord. Yes. And what I think is another little neat bit of foreshadowing on Whedon's part, Scott's tending to the body of his his fallen bed buddy, and we get a little bit of dialogue from somebody else. And, you know, I'm not going to spill the beans now, but the someone else eventually becomes the focus of the third arc, which was really cool. I mean, we did not have to do that. Right. It, it, you know, these two pages 
uh, starting with, you know, you see Emma's face on the top. That pair of pages really didn't have to be in this story. They they do nothing but set up the next story. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you're right. We know she's been knocked out. They could have did it in one panel. Hank said, there's nothing wrong with you. Why aren't you getting up? But he, he goes the extra distance, and that's the thing I love about this series. It's not just drop it on the page, get it done, get it out, we'll go to the next issue. This is a carefully tuned machine, and nope. I, I think that's why I appreciate it a little more, because he, he goes that extra distance to, to make this stuff really enjoyable for re-readings and, and re-re-readings. You know, it's just you can, you can jump into this a, a, a million different times, and I'm, I'm sure you'll find something else that you missed. Yeah, it's got talking to her, telling her to get up. And what killed me was that um, that's when, going back to my fondness for Scott Summers or my, um, what the parallels, for lack of a better term, that that, that I see between us, what, what makes me chuckle is that what's going on in her head, they actually say to Emma that she could do so much better, that, you know, of, of all the people... There's, there's got to be, you know, this geek. I mean, what, what is it about him? You know, out of everybody you could have used to infiltrate the team, you, you just. And the quote is, you know, I, I know you wanted to cement your standing in the group, but if that geek was sharing my bed, I, I think I'd try not to wake up. I, I guess maybe I just, I, I just honed in on the geek part. Right. But if it wasn't Scott, who would it have been? Based on this make on the makeup of Whedon's X Men, she never would have got past Logan's defenses. No, so that leaves Hank. Right, and and and, he, and she can mess with his head enough because you know he's scared about devolving, and she could have played up on the whole cure thing and the fact that and you know and, and like he's telling Logan to kiss a woman to feel something with my fingers again. She could have put all those fears aside and said, "You don't need that with me." So I mean, you know, Scott's the most human-looking one. He's the one who gets all the babes, according to what everybody else has said. Even though the only babe I recall has ever been Gina, okay, and Madeline, which is a Gina-like. So, you know, I mean, you're right. There really isn't anybody else that there could have been. But you know, the fact that Scott is called a dullard and they're just like, well, why him? And yeah, again, just 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 those conversations she's having in her head with we know who later on, but with whoever else at the time, it's just another thing that that kind of made sense to me as far as the character goes. Yeah, and then again, I think one gene is worth a thousand uh, butterfaces, right? So <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so I guess he d- he does get all the babes. The the Sentinels on the on the rampage, and the X Men kind of deal with it, which is a neat little battle, and and that scene where. Lockheed illuminates the area. That's one creepy ass sentinel. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, Cassidy, and he nailed the shadows on that. Very nice. There have been other other X Men issues where we've seen the team in action and, and we hear Scott yelling out commands. But this is the first time I think I've actually just paid enough attention to know that while before this is even happening, you already have Scott barking orders, telling everybody what to do. This is how we're doing it, and it it happens quickly and everything gets hit just the right way and it's it's the first time i think i've honestly just sat and noticed scott taking control taking command and putting everybody into action and if you notice though that one brilliant scene where he takes off the visor and blasts yes. the, the sentinel into the distance Nothing and talk talk about devastating power but 
Wolverine responds to him. Says, yeah. Uh, he, yeah. He remembers while he's in charge. But if you notice, Wolverine's not responding to his battle tactics or his, his uh, take charge attitude. He's responding to the sheer amount of force this guy unleashed on this Sentinel. The devastation that was caused by it. Right. That, see, that's what Logan responds to. How does Whedon know these characters so well? It's, it's, it's very similar. Well, I don't know about very because it's, it's still a young series. People might look at Brad Meltzer's take on another certain superpower team in a few months and say, hey, remember when Whedon did Astonishing? They might actually end up comparing these two super teams based on the writers writing them because we know the love Meltzer has for the characters from the folks down the street. And Whedon's doing a bang-up job with the X-Men here. Yeah. And to give uh, Mr. Meltzer a little bit of credit, I read Zero and One. Didn't particularly care for Zero too much, but I think he nailed it on one. Yes, yeah, I agree with did that. A good job. And then it doesn't, it doesn't hurt that he used one of my favorite characters as a focal point. I, I really like Red Tornado. I always have. But uh, let us get this train back on the tracks. My, yes, my yes, yes, yes. Kitty herds the students together. Yes. And where does she take them? Where? Oh, but to the danger room. Right. The most, the most secure place on the campus. Exactly. Which, in this case... Turns out, <laughs> turns out to be the absolute worst place she could have taken them. And on the ground, we find the battered and broken and bleeding body of poor little Wing, who is now reanimated by something. Yes. And you know what? Talk about sick to your stomach. Again, Cassidy. Contor- <laughs> he con- With the neck, the leg. Oh, he contorted this poor kid. It, it was, I think it was the neck that did it for me. Your head's facing one direction and your eyes are going in the opposite. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. God. But uh, Mr. Wing is back, and now Kitty and the group are prisoner in the danger room. And Emma is uh, pretty shocked to find out that the danger room is angry. And how about Logan's uh, face above the panel where Emma says the danger room's angry? Just unbelievable rendering on Cassidy. Yes. It's like he knows the guy. Either that or he has a model that looks exactly like him. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, someone didn't go to the Greg Land School of uh, Facial Rendition. I'm going to skip over that. Um, <laughs> now, issue nine. Issue nine for me is the kicker. It's the one issue where Whedon lays all the cards on the table and says, this is where I'm going with this story. He did it in the first six with the first issue but this number nine i think is the is the the big uh pivotal point in this run and it's where i perked up and said okay something's going on here and it it all has to do with what goes on in the danger room while kitty and the uh students are trapped this is where i i i was looking at a comic book and you um you were looking at a whole hell of a lot more and I'm just going to gloss over it now, and we'll, okay. get, we'll, we'll get back to it. The Danger Room, through Wing, throws a whole bunch of shit at Kitty and the kids. And while all this is happening, the X-Men are trying to bust in through another alternate route to get at the Danger Room's command core and shut the damn thing down. Right. Which, we find out, is exactly what the Danger Room wanted them to do. Right. And because Wing took his life in the danger room, it enabled the artificial intelligence controlling the system to 
work around a subroutine Professor X had placed in there. We find out in this issue that the Danger Room, as far as the tweak Danger Room with the Shire technology, was originally programmed to kill. And because Professor X didn't want a bunch of lawsuits and the dead students on his hand, <laughs> he cobbled together a little subroutine that pretty much crippled the Danger Room in much the same way as Peter was uh, held prisoner. Professor X held the Danger Room as a prisoner of its own programming. It couldn't. Right. Do, it couldn't do that for which it was designed. It had to, you know, hold back. And for however long this was going on, he lopped it off at the knees. He crippled it. Right. And and it's not too happy about that. But because the danger room didn't reach out to Wing and stop him from killing himself, he effective. Well, she. Well, let's not get ahead. The danger. The danger room effectively allowed this kid to die which is basically the same thing as if it pushed him off the cliff himself. So that was the clincher that enabled it to break its programming and throw all this poo-poo the X-Men's way. And uh, while all this uh, goofiness is going on, it just so happens to reach out and touch the Blackbird, sending it screaming into the mansion, causing a whole bunch of crap. While the X-Men are trying to disable the command core and, and save their lives, the danger room is working out a little bit of uh, frustration, it's Yeah. Eventually, the X-Men do what they do very well, and they get to the command core and unleash it. And that enables the danger room to basically break free of its constraints and take a physical form. Right. And if you look at that physical form, now... We know the Danger Room was tweaked with Shi'ar technology. Do you notice anything familiar about the uh, head area of this? Uh, it looks like Lalandra's feathers. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, I, I, I still find it hard to believe that the hair is, or, or what would be hair is comprised of feathers. But yeah, that, that's, that's exactly where I was going. And again, like Ultimate Vision, I find it really weird that an artificial intelligence a non-life form, a non-human life form, would take it upon itself to make metal boobs. I well, if, if it wasn't a woman, then they'd have a bulge. But I think there's a purpose behind Whedon making it a woman, It's a, and it's to throw you off a little bit, because if it was a man, it'd be pretty apparent what he was doing, but the fact that it's a woman maybe would give you a little bit of... Uh, something to look at while the the real gears are turning in the background right so that's and how about that one scene where peter flings himself into the breach and logan looks up into the hole and then just yeah and he's it, back yeah and it, it didn't strike him that one of his best friends has returned until he saw this guy do what he does every time they go into battle he selflessly throws himself into the thick of things to save his his team and it, it we've seen it time and time again and the guy threw himself at the legacy virus basically to save yeah. his, his people so that's it's brilliant hey guys it's marty here i just thought i'd give you a call and let you know how much i'm enjoying your podcast uh, oh you know uh Vince is always talking about the man thing, and, you know, uh, 
I decided to see what what the commotion was all about, so I broke my man thing out and I just wanted to see, you know, what's what's going on here and wouldn't you know it? Oh uh, Vince is right. Ugh. Uh, I I never realized just just how enjoyable man thing was. Ooh. Ugh. Uh, you know, it's been quite a while, but it is good to get the old man thing out every so often. Uh, you know, I forgot, I forgot how just how how big man thing is. Oh, that is a big man thing. Oh. Yeah, he's big, all right, but he's he's real sensitive too. Oh. Especially right there, yeah. Oh, 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 oh the man thing's really sensitive right there. Oh, 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 oh. Uh, uh, yeah, this this man thing really is good. Wait. Take it! Yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, you're right, Vince. That really was good. Uh, yeah, I can't wait to see what you're going to talk about next week. Uh, well, this is Marty signing off, and uh, I'll talk to you next week. <laughs> Bye. Whew. What was that? Oh, um, I think I I think I puked in my mouth a little bit. Just a little bit? I, I swear to God. Uh, you know, uh, I don't think I've ever heard a more... I, I'm sticky. There are little, beautiful, pristine baby angels in heaven right now crying and throwing up over themselves from that message. And now they're slipping in it and they're falling in a big old bunch of writhing, disgusting, puke-covered baby angels. And it's all your fault, Marty. <laughs> <laughs> there goes the there goes the clean tag. Yeah. Oh God. well, you know he's he, he. I guess you can say he left his mark. Oh, my <laughs> God, uh, I think we need something to. We need a little bit of. Uh, we need to cleanse the palate. We need some X Men sorbet here. To <laughs> oh God. <laughs> okay, go. Ugh. I need something to rinse my mouth out. Um, jumping into issue ten, we got a little bit of weed and messing with time here. Yeah, yeah. At first, you're, uh, it might throw you for a loop. You might think that um, that they were twins. Right. There's a, a blackbird screaming towards a destination, and uh, we see old buddy Charlie in his uh, souped-up wheelchair. It, it appears to me that the uh, Danger Room, or effectively known as Danger at this point, wants a little bit of uh, comeuppance. Yeah, a little bit yeah, of ret- retribution on Daddy yeah. for uh, yeah, she wants her due. Talk about a pitched battle! She basically makes mincemeat out of the X Men in very short order. I don't know about short, short order. I mean, they were holding their own for a little while. You had, um, yeah, okay. She kind of took Emma out quickly because Emma didn't want to shatter 
at first Emma thought that she was going to be the first one out but once once Scott saw that Emma was in danger he screamed for Emma and it wasn't Emma that she wanted to take out first take out and, the brains first right you know you get you get rid of you get rid of the guy calling the shots and it, it, it's neat you know jumping ahead that here comes you know she she knocks Colossus back and here comes you know at a high velocity a heavy heavy amount of of steel coming at you but kitty is solid because she's giving cpr to scott so peter goes from steel to flesh knocking himself out knocking kitty out so you have kitty peter and scott all down leaving beast and logan but beast was pretty much knocked out before kitty and uh Peter and I, and when I say knocked out, I should say impaled. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay. What was neat was even because first of all, I was looking at it initially as like they they put up a hell of a fight, and it was like the you know if it wasn't if it wasn't for Emma and her dirty little secret, the outcome might have been different. I disagree. I think they were pretty much doomed from the beginning because it's like basically they fought this thing countless times before it knows how they move it's like if they were fighting themselves this thing anticipates every movement they're going to make based on past performance and the only time it's actually surprised if you notice is when peter takes it upon himself to do something he doesn't normally do by flinging a human body at it. that's right that's right so yes i forgot about that yeah it's conditioned to to fight these people and and that that one panel where all the text is is coming i mean it knows exactly what they're going to do and the one that i honed in on can you read off what what it says for cyclops irrational anger confirmed by sentinel uplink this is someone who's the leader this is someone who's the cool calm collected i have everything in control i'm loyal i'm dull this is this is the guy who either you think is just not necessarily a pushover but you consider him just to be like weak in the sense that he's he's just someone who lacks personality and no one gives him a second thought but yet danger has determined that scott summers is to be irrational and i think she's in terms of a machine anger would be considered irrational but it's to me i was reading it as though it surprised her somewhat yeah you could read it that way and that works you know because if, if, if i someone who's supposed to have all his all his ducks in a row if he needs to be in charge of his team and know where everybody is at any given time and how to react to any situation to me that's not somebody that's irrational but, but because if but because of how he defeated the sentinel she kind of has to look at things a little differently meaning that maybe his response to the sentinel was not according to past performance right i don't remember him ever blasting something without his visor right in recent memory so she would consider that an irrational move based on his being pissed off that this thing was about to dump i on want it him. off my lawn yeah so i i would think any kind of emotion would be considered irrational by the machine if she saw him sweat you know, maybe that would be considered irrational. Exas- okay. Exasperation or, or determination based on his friends getting graded into... Mincemeat. Yeah, yeah mincemeat. Right, right. I, I would think anything is going to set off this machine. But, yeah, she... All right, not short order, but I think it was a pretty much pitched battle that was decided basically from the start. And... 
even Kitty phasing through danger couldn't do a damn thing. And that that's usually uh That's a that's usually a surefire way to end it quickly. Right. And while the battle's going on, Whedon offers us a little glimpse at um some sword characters we haven't met so far. Right. Particularly the alien empath, Sidron. Now, this guy in in two pages, I love him already. He yeah. he reminds me a lot of uh, Double X from oh, from, uh, from Superboy from Project Cadmus. Yeah, just a wisecracking alien, know it all. You know, yeah, he had some of the best lines, especially the uh, if 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 I eat your head right now, uh, like two thirds of your team would would uh, <laughs> would just jump for joy. Yeah, and Agent Brand holds her own with the wisecrack. She's pretty yes. good. Yes, yeah. We get a, a glimpse at the inner workings of Sword a little bit, and we also return to our old buddy Ord, who's yes. now, now in Sword custody. And it's a pretty snazzy-looking prison cell. Yeah, as I say, it's an odd little... Uh, it's almost like a throne they got him on there. Yeah, I guess they really want to make him feel at home. Well, he is a, an alien dignitary, so... Oh, right, okay. They, they couldn't really dump him in a holding cell. And feed him, you know, feed him bread and water. But yeah, so there's Orda's not out of the picture yet. Right. We got to keep an eye on him. And then we return to Professor X in Genosha, of all places. And and I was I wanted to ask why is um why is Charles in Genosha? What I mean is this is this another Morrison thing? Is this something that hasn't been explained? Is it early on in the Morrison run, Cassandra Nova? sent a horde of sentinels to the place and blasted it to the ground. And Magneto, and, um, well, primarily Magneto, and with a little help of Charlie, are over there checking up on things, building... Okay. Yeah. And Magneto plays a part in this, in issue 11. Yeah, Yeah, towards the end, yes. Speaking of Magneto, well, the the X-Men realize where danger's going. Thanks to Scott's little bomb in issue 10 that Emma had no idea, and they were pretty smart to keep that from Emma, of uh, Professor X's location. But, but even after she does find out, it, uh, it didn't take too long for her friends to get there. Which sets up the next arc. But we, we're not going to get into that because we don't right. want to poop in anybody's Cheerios. Right. The Blackbird screams over Genosha. Professor X knows she's there. He's got a psi link with, with danger. She drops down on him. And uh, good old Charlie, you know, he's ready for her. Yes. He uh, sets up a dead corpse. <laughs> I mean, is there any other kind of corpse? <laughs> <laughs> At least he didn't find some, you know, he found somebody with no hair. Yeah. No, no, no eyes, no teeth either, but hey. Or he pulled the hair out. Oh, yeah, maybe. And uh, judging from his new resourcefulness... Uh, he could have done that, and, yeah. and and Chuck tries to run her down with a truck, which proves to be pretty futile. But he pushes her in the direction of a power plant, and in the midst of the battle, we we get a little bit of information from Charles that he relied on his old buddy slash foe slash buddy uh, Magneto to shut down all the computer systems in the area. So basically, danger is without options at this point. We think. Professor X pushes her into a power plant and tries to shock the piss out of her. And it was the only power plant that they left running for this purpose. Right. And did you notice that little scene where Charles is trying to push her off the road and she's hugging the front of the truck and and he said, Do you know what I've been up to? I've been running scenarios. Yeah. Yeah. So 
Whedon has done a little bit of a flip again. He has an artificial intelligence that is acting like a human, and he's got Chuck, whose mind is acting like a computer. Right. He's running, you know, scenarios. He's doing permutations. He's outcomes. He's he's basically has the mind of a machine. So that's that's another neat little juxtaposition by Mr. Whedon. Back at the mansion, Golden Healer guy is working his magic on Kitty and and Peter, who should, by all accounts, be dead. Yeah. But that's oh, what we he, know Scott should be at least. <laughs> Hi guys, this is Chris Chavez, Equinox on the forums. And when I saw the post out there that Vince had said, uh, asking for um, audio submissions for the upcoming 3B show, um, I thought, well, I could always leave a standard voicemail message or something like that, or something really scary that would cause children to urinate uncontrollably like Marty might do. Uh, but then I thought, you know what, I'm going to try something a little different. I'm going to try a little retro review here. Uh, a little while back, I posted that I had scored a really good uh, deal on some older issue comics. Um, most notably, the Micronauts. Yes, for those of you that remember the Micronauts toys from way back in the uh, late 70s, Marvel printed out a series uh, based on the Micronauts toys um, with uh, issue number one proudly proclaiming still only 35 cents. Yes, you do the math. God, how many books could we buy for the amount that we uh, pay for single issues these days? Um, but anyway, uh, I wanted to focus in on uh, the first storyline which uh, basically covered issues 1 through 11. Uh, creative team, uh, most notably, uh, with Bill Mantlo as the uh, writer and Michael Golden as uh, the artist. Uh, Joseph Rubenstein was the uh, inker for a majority of the uh, first storyline with uh, Al Milgram. Um, also handling uh, inking along the way as well. Um, one of the things that you'll kind of notice if you uh, are able to get these issues, uh, because as far as I know, they are not traded or collected anywhere. Kind of a shame. Um, but uh, one of the things you'll notice is this is way back in the day of everything on newsprint. So the art for some people that uh, uh, are used to reading the books nowadays on the uh, uh, you know full uh, bleed edge-to-edge -edge artwork, um, you're going to see a, a jarring uh, change in what you're used to seeing in your regular artwork. Um, but, God, I mean, the, the, the story that's in these uh, issues is, is just meaty and, and fantastic. Um, one of the things that I really have to give the writer uh, Mantlo uh, credit on with this was basically taking something that would have been possibly a throwaway concept for anybody else, um, you know, basically a, a toy line knockoff, and creating a great and, and, and vivid world, giving all of his characters uh, a tremendous backstory and, uh, you know, leaving things wide open for being explored in the uh, in future issues. Um, issue number one, maybe, uh, you know, kind of a standard uh, calling card for new series back in that those days or, or you know, uh, notable issues. Uh, issue number one, covered by the uh, great Dave Cockrum, you know, also from uh, Giant Size X-Men number one and the X-Men 
back in the day before John Byrne uh, started up on the art tours for that. Um, Michael Golden's art with, with Joseph Rubenstein. The man the man can draw the shit out of the page. Let me let me tell you. Um, he he takes the uh, the initial designs uh, that are laid out by the toy manufacturer and just he brings them to life. I mean, you you look at everything in here and yeah, every once in a while you can see something that you know you can tell. Okay, yeah, that was based off of a toy, but you know for the most part, I I have to say as far as the visuals, it looks like. Um, uh, what you would think uh, of a classic kind of Marvel um, uh, universe or a classic Marvel uh, uh, environment. Um, the characters, I mean, you know, you've got your commander, Octurus Ran, uh, Acroyer, the uh, the Princess Marionette, and uh, uh, Bug as the uh, the main uh, characters, um, as well as Biotron and uh, Microtron. Got all the classic ships, um, you know the the microverse um, itself, um, you know basically uh, kind of a, an offshoot of of the regular Marvel uh, universe, kind of along the lines or connected uh, along the lines the same way as you would you know let's say the negative zone to the regular Marvel universe. Um, you had some crossover of the characters, uh, basically from their exploits in uh, issue number one. Um, up against the uh, the big bad in this series, which was Baron Karza, um, but basically in in issue one itself, uh, you have uh, kind of the initial backstory laid out and um, building up the characters and what their place in the universe is, uh, and then from there crossing over into um, the Marvel uni- universe from their own uh, world. Um, yeah, I'm not going to go into a lot of details. I don't really want to spoil things for for everybody. I I really think that if you have a chance, you know, go out and you know eBay or or you know back issue bins, find those find these issues, um, check them out. You really won't you know be disappointed. Um, kind of jumping ahead in the uh, the series, um, one of the things that I know will make Vince very very happy is issue number seven had the first crossover uh, with a character from the Marvel universe none other than you know something near and dear to Vince's heart or you know uh, another part of his anatomy uh the man thing Pre- you know s- featured uh, predominantly on the cover and one of the things I do have to point out is you know if uh, you ever question you know the uh, the quality of golden's art um you know way back in the the early days of of newsprint just looking at the covers you you get a sense and you you know the man has got some serious talent. Um, you know, with with newsprint printing, it, it muddies up the colors. The lines may be able, may get a little softer or, or a little bit muddier. But boy, you know, looking at the co- covers for these books, just, again, just fantastic. Um, you know, going into the the story with with uh, uh, number seven, um, not a lot of. Um, interaction with the man thing and himself he kind of makes his appearance in a full full page spread about halfway uh through but just overall uh gorgeously drawn gorgeous figures um jumping ahead to the next issue issue number eight um another kind of uh uh, guest star mainstay of the Marvel Universe uh, back around when these came out was uh, the introduction of Captain Universe um, and uh, I know that we had some Cap- I think uh, Captain Universe um, uh, 
crossovers with some Marvel characters uh, a while back. You know what? Unfortunately, I, I myself didn't pick those up. Um, but uh, I remember uh, back with I think it was Marvel Comics Presents or another uh, series uh, back around the early '80s. Uh, Steve Ditko uh, drew uh, quite a few Marvel uh, Captain Universe um, stories. Um, but again, gorgeous, gorgeous images in, in uh, issue number eight uh, from Golden. Um, fantastic uh, full-page spreads uh, that he's got in here, as well as uh, you know the the layout of his images. You know what? You could never ever uh, uh, say that the guy traced anything that he drew. Um, one thing that I found kind of notable, jumping ahead kind of to issue number nine, which actually was not part of the uh, Micronauts story, but one of the things that kind of sent a little bit of a shiver up my spine or what have you, was uh, in flipping through the, the pages um, on, uh, gosh, what page is this here? Uh, looks like page 28. Oh, and, and one of the things you may find kind of interesting back, back then is, you know, at, at the bottom of page temp page number 27 the uh the words that many of the old time comic readers will will uh, be used used to uh continued after second page following um but uh, interestingly uh the page following page 27 titled the bullpen bulletins with uh you know message from Stan soapbox uh on there uh his you know sign off words excelsior with his signature of Stan but one of the things i found was kind of uh, a little chilling on there was uh the only uh, Marvel hero uh, that was on the uh, bullpen bulletins page back then was um, Giant Man, who made his um, uh, debut in Marvel 2 and 1 number 55. Now, you may not uh, be aware, but the Giant Man that's pictured on this page was the Goliath that was just killed off in Civil War. Uh, I thought it was just uh, kind of a odd coincidence. But anyway, um, you know, again, if you have the chance, I highly recommend you you, you pick this uh, series up. Um, the uh, the issue or the the run of uh, Micronauts went for um, at least five years with uh, additional series that were um, picked up after that. Uh, I think it was the New Adventures of the Micronauts. Uh, Michael Golden did uh, a great run on the series, followed up uh, notably by uh, Pat Broderick. Uh, there was a crossover with um, the Fantastic Four. Uh, Micronauts also had a crossover with the X-Men um, as well. Um, you know, they may not have been the mainstay of the Marvel Universe, but damn, they they really gave you uh, the bang for your buck. And you know, at the prices that those issues were back then, you know, 35 and eventually 40 cents uh, each, uh, you really couldn't uh, beat. Uh, the the entertainment value that you got with that, um, but anyway, um, you know, again, I recommend it if you got a chance, read them. If you know somebody's got these issues, borrow them, um, enjoy them, uh, share them around, seek them out. Anyway, again, Equinox on the forums signing out. Vince, Dave, have a great one, and uh, looking forward to many more future shows. Thanks. <laughs> Professor X and Danger share minds for a little while. And I think that this scene is really cool. She reveals her uh, her intentions 
I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna get you and I'm gonna kill all your kids and and I'm gonna win. <laughs> She's a little dog too. And what does um, Charlie say? You know, she's harassing him based on his limitations. You know, he's he he said to her, "You're so advanced, and and so far above us. Yet you take the body of a, a human." And right. She, and she says, "Well, at least my body can can walk. You know, <laughs> you, you're you're bound by your limitations." And Charlie says, "You know, if none of us had limitations, what would God do with his time?" <laughs> yeah. When you look at the the big picture, as far as these six issues go, I don't think there's anything planted in here by Whedon by chance. I think he specifically meant to put what he did in here. Why would Charles say that? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But then we find out you know, Charlie is holding his own in this battle. He he's decapitated her. He seems to have the upper hand. He thinks, but she taps into a piece of electronics. I don't think uh, Charlie foresaw. She 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 takes the plane and basically tries to smush him with it. Yes. But um, again, Professor X is Professor X, and he basically made the plane think that he was in an area in which he was not. So he's still around. Right. All he has is a head left of uh, our little buddy Danger, and he flips it over his shoulder, and ta-da, Peter catches it, and the X-Men are there, and everybody thinks, you know, okay, this is a squish away from being over, and unfortunately for them, it's not. No. Because there was another little piece of electronics that Miss Danger tapped into, and that's a mean mother of a sentinel. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's a tri-sentinel, isn't it? That's what I was thinking. Yeah. That's yeah. Odd that he would pick a tri sentinel for this story, isn't it? <laughs> well, some might think, but based on your theory, it probably fits into the grand scheme of things. And it looks like there's a lot more in there than a tri sentinel. I mean, it it probably cobbled hardware from a bunch of different things. But yeah, yes, one mean mother bearing down on the X Men. Oof. And the sentinel calls the uh, danger mother. Yeah. Well, she did give him well, life. Yes, yeah, she did. Yes, she did have, um, so did the other, uh, right, okay. So the Sentinel's bearing down on our buddies. What to do? And as, as well, usual. Well, let's, let's, let's chat with, with Chuck. Actually, we have, we, we have Beast taking care of, of Professor X. Scott calls everybody to formation. Wolverine's ready to go. Colossus is ready to go. Kitty's ready to go. Actually, when the, was right. it when the plane came down? No. That everybody had to, it was when the Sentinel attacked that everybody grabbed hold of Kitty? Right. And she phases everyone to keep them out of harm's way. Right. And, and I think it's very revealing, her uh, choice of terms at the end of her, the sentence. She said, is that all you got, bub? Bub. And that's, that's <laughs> the, old, the years of the old Kitty Pride and Wolverine miniseries bubbling to yeah. the surface. Yes. That didn't work. So what does the Sentinel do? It unleashes a plague of flying things on them. And so they have to stop danger and how to do it. And once again, our buddy uh, Wolverine is used as a projectile. Colossus flings him at the Sentinel while the Beast takes care of Professor X. And Emma is nowhere to be found in part of this battle. She She just takes off. That, again, 
is Mr. Whedon setting up the next issue. And we basically, I didn't have an, any idea who it was at this point. Uh, there's, no, there's no mistaking the fact that she's not... A team player? Yes. And Which, she, and so, it, it, again, even though in the first six, I kind of saw the relationship between her and Scott a little more clearer. Then she goes and pulls this stuff, and now, well, this is the Emma that I know and love. This is This is... This is the villainess. This is the woman who, who tried to kill the X-Men the first time we came across her. That, so it's very easy for me to just go ahead and dislike her again. And based on what we know from the next arc, I find her to be the typical Emma. But as you said, she's, she's a vindictive, conniving, plotting bitch. Right. But there's something else there, too. There's a, another aspect of her personality that we haven't had too much experience with, and that's there's actually, I think, a caring soul in there. Somewhere deep down. So it, it is the Emma we know, and it's not the Emma we know. Right. When all is said and done, who saves today? The person that Whedon latched onto the most. Mm-hmm. Miss, well, Miss, yeah. Ki- Miss Kitty. And because she... And maybe you, know, maybe you can tie this into your foreshadowing also. Not only did she use the phrase, bub, she asks Petey for a fastball special. Yes, and so she infiltrates the Sentinel, and she doesn't rip it apart. She doesn't phase through it, because that's pretty useless. She averts the danger by basically allowing it to feel, which is so because perfect it, for Kitty. She, she, she wants it to recall a previous memory. Which was the destruction of uh, like six, 15, six, 16 million mutants. Right, and this thing is so I I want to say heartbroken and and disgusted by what it's done yes. that it it just takes off. It it has more of a conscience than its parent ever did, which makes it more human than what its its parent tried to to look like. And at the end of this thing, once again, Charlie's cast in a bad light. How many times have we seen this? <laughs> where 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 Chuck is the villain, in a sense, and I and again. Uh, the title of the arc, I think, refers more to Professor X than it does to the Danger Room. I think Charlie's the dangerous one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would so say that. And Peter's not too pleased with him, because if he knew that the, the Danger Room was sentient and kept it in digital chains for however long, Peter could pretty much sympathize with that. And he's not all that happy. And I don't think any of them are at the end of this. No, definitely not. No, they... Uh you know, it's, and it's 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 not easy. I mean, their father figure, their their mentor, the person that helped them to do what what it is they've been doing, as far as you know, battling danger and trying to come out on top. This is this is the man who helped them be what they are. Yet he's also the man that practically killed them in one fell swoop with 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 this creation. That's right up there with Wing trying to swallow. The fact that he's he's cured, you know, this it's the same type of pill almost. It's like your father coming into your bed at night and trying to smother you while you're asleep. You know, the the, the Professor X is the mentor. He's the father figure. Yeah. If you can't trust and follow a leader without a shred of doubt, then that's not an effective leader. I don't I don't think. And Charlie has given the X Men a, <laughs> a lot, lot a lot of doubt over the years. Yeah. You know, I mean, and 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 as a um, kids in the hall reference there with that father coming in to smother you with a pillow, and and for Christmas you're supposed to give him a a pair of tap a pair of tap dance shoes. So this way you'll hear him when he comes into the room. 
we finally learn the uh, the puppeteers as far as Emma goes, and it's the newly formatted um, Hellfire Club. Yeah, we see Sebastian Shaw, we see Cassandra Nova, uh, and two other characters that I don't think I've ever seen before. Well, the hooded one is called Perfection, and the less we say about that, the better. Okay. As, as far as the next arc goes. But the goth-looking chick is Negasonic Teenage Warhead. Yes. <laughs> Best name ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this this basically uh, sets up the next arc, as Whedon is wont to do. And I'm sure there are clues in this arc as to what he's going to do after that. I think this is a meatier read than Danger. For for how how much meat that had on the bones, this is pretty much a a fully intact corpse as far as I'm concerned. There's a lot going on in this. Yes, there is. Yeah, I mean it's at first glance you could think, oh, they fought the danger room and okay, big whoop and you know Ord, while not well, well like we've called him a bumbler and not somebody that looks extremely menacing, you know, taking on. Yeah, so I can understand where some people have said that, that the last six issues of the first 12 were a little lacking, but if you um, if you really look at it, 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 it turns out that no, there's, uh, there's quite a lot to, uh, to chew on and digest. What you just heard was the Portuguese anthem, or part of it, anyway. You're listening to the Uncanny X... No? You sure? Uh, Alright, uh, okay, uh, you're listening to the Bullpen Bulletins podcast. You sure? Uncanny X-Cast rolls off the tongue. Why such a freaking long title? Um, so, I'll talk about the... What was it? Forums? Yeah, alright. Uh, I'll talk about the forums. Um, so if you feel that you don't have enough pain, delusion, and crushing disappointment in your life, please come to the forums. You can access them by opening your browser and typing bullpenboltenspodcast.com. Right now. Just do it right now. Boltens has two wells. Yes, I'm pretty sure. Okay, you're there. Good. So, scroll down. You don't have a wheel on your mouse. Just use the arrows. Or the sidebar thing. Yeah. Down. Okay, on your left-hand side, you'll see forum. 
Click it. Am I being forceful? Click it, please. Okay, so now you can read all the topics, but sadly, you still can't post anything. No, in a similar fashion to the Republican conventions, you'll have to sell your soul to the devil and swear eternal devotion to the two administrators, so your voice can be heard, or in this case, read. Whatever, so now you renounce your faith and you have a new god named Vince. But that still isn't enough. When you register, you'll receive a personal message. Uh, all standard protocol, don't worry. In it, you'll find how and why you'll be required to give karma to organic matter every time he posts. Instructions on how to give karma, uh, though pretty obvious, will be in the message. And you're done! All fun times ahead now, and to leave you all as I started, I now have the pleasure of giving you the anthem of the great nation who brings us the bullpen bulletins. Why isn't the anthem up? Press the button. Why didn't you press the... It's not... One job. You had one job. It's not a difficult one. Yes, I'm pretty sure it's their anthem. Because I have seen them singing it on the streets while waving flags. Oh, just press it. religious undertones in this thing and i'm gonna i'm gonna try and draw a conclusion and yeah i probably won't nail it but i'm, I'm thinking i'm gonna come close okay now let's look at it from the first part which was issue seven let's count how many resurrections are in this thing you have a resurrection of sorts with the x-men who go from being quote outlaws or clandestine do-gooders to above-the-table, full-blown superheroes. So you can call that a rebirth or a resurrection of sorts. Okay. You've got the Sentinel. There's no doubt about that, that this Sentinel has been reborn, reactivated by something. And in fact, Whedon pretty much hammers that home in the very first thing the Sentinel says, that I hear you, Lord. Some outside force has taken the Sentinel from an inactive state and clicked it on. It's now active. So, in effect, it resurrected it. You got the Danger Room, who has gone from State A, the docile, uh, bound by its own programming state, to a unfettered kind of independent entity. 
So there's another resurrection there. And then at the end of the story, the Genosian Sentinel is risen from the dead. Right. An- another religious reference. I mean, and again, who resurrected it was danger. Now let's go back to the Sentinel. The Sentinel's trudging along the countryside, calling out for its lord. And when it meets Wolverine, he Wolverine particularly said that the Sentinel was kind of chatty. It said that the children will pay for the sins of the father, which could be another little Whedon flip-flop because, you know, in Christianity you had your son of God paying for the sins of the, the children and basically giving himself up right. so the sake that humanity can, can thrive and, and, and continue. And in this case you, you get, you know, the father has to pay for what the children has done. But take a look at the Danger Room sequence. And I don't think it's any more apparent than this sequence, what Whedon has tried to do, like I said before. Uh, Kitty and the kids, in that double-page spread, what does that look like to you? That looks a little bit like hell. That pretty much is hell. And in the Old Testament, um, those who have committed sins against God, and where were they cast? Into hell. So we go from hell... And basically, Danger, through Wing, is is saying that I make the world here. So he's telling Kitty, sweetheart, I'm God. You don't don't realize it yet, but I am the creator. I make this place. I shape it into whatever I want it to be. As far as you're concerned, I'm God. So they go from hell. So before the, the, the scene changes to the desert, Danger looks at her with that cocked head and, and tells her, this is a celebration. It's a mitzvah. Another religious reference. It's a nativity scene. So I get the impression that Danger thinks she's a digital messiah. Well, the fact that she... Yeah, I mean, she's, she, she's taken a life, but she's given plenty. She calls Wing her baptism. Right. That when Wing died, she was baptized into this new existence. And she transforms the danger room, or herself, we should say, into this desert setting. And, and says, you know, most of my favorite religious stories, ding, 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 there's always a desert. Someone wandering. Wandering. Now, the wandering Jew harassed Jesus on the way to the crucifixion. He taunted Jesus, and, and he was cursed to walk the earth until the second coming. Which is what I think we have here, in terms of... Danger, reborn. This is this is you have the God of the danger room, trapped, bound in a, in one state, and is reborn, which you can call a second coming. Right. And then, after the desert landscape melts away, and it's littered with skulls, <laughs> which then turns into this apocalyptic setting with skulls falling and people supposedly well it looks like they're dying to me you know mountains erupting out of the ground and buildings shattered and this to me looks like an apocalyptic setting right and isn't the second coming always said to be accompanied by the apocalypse from what i've always read so it's this whole all, all that's missing is a little guy with a sandwich board saying the end is nigh. <laughs> Eat at Joe's. <laughs> <laughs> Eat at Joe's on the other side. Yeah. But, uh, and I think it's really neat that Whedon went the extra step and 
one of those monoliths has Magneto's head on it. And so if, if this is in fact Genosha that it's trying to depict, maybe this is a little tip-off to Kitty and and she she Cassidy goes out of his way in one of the panels to actually make her l- she's looking above wing at the background she's not looking at, at wing yes i noticed that yeah, and with so the eyes. so it clicks with kitty that this could be genosha and i think the magneto was a tip off because magneto like i said is very involved in the affairs of genosha so this apocalyptic thing is another indication to me that Maybe what we've got here is a uh, uh, the Messiah when she tricks it into freeing its command core, which is, I take it as something that would make the command core makes danger what she is. It it defines her way of thinking. It defines her her logic. Everything that makes danger dangerous is encased in this command core which could be another word for a soul yes so that, go along with that. so they free the, they free her soul and basically she takes human form and then you get another another instance of healing with the golden child who patches up kitty and and peter and you know if you if you look at the way he does it He's it's, it's he's almost Christ-like. yes he's almost going into a, a trance like state a fugue state is you know he's 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 mending these human souls together and and uh, again once we get to that awesome scene where Charlie's talking to Danger and they're in each other's minds and he drops that bomb about what would God do at this time that's when it pretty much became apparent to me that there's you know Whedon's doing a. Uh, a little resurrection play, a little play on the Messiah here. <laughs> and, and again, uh, the Tri-Sentinel. It, 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 it has to have three heads for a reason, the Trinity. It, he could have used anything in that spot. He could have just, it could have been one, uh, one-headed Sentinel. It could have been two Sentinels. You know, it, but why use one with three heads? I, uh, I think Whedon's a lot sharper than just to randomly throw... Yeah, put a sentinel in there. Yeah, make give it three heads. It has to have three heads for a reason. <laughs> and then when the X Men are in the thick of battle, it leads it, it it unleashes a plague on them, a plague of of locusts. Locusts, like uh, you know the the ten calamities inflicted on Egypt in the Book of uh, Exodus. Th- these are plagues of biblical proportions why do these little machines resemble flying locusts there's a reason why and and then again when danger's in the thick of it in this last chapter she has wings angelic yes no you're right i was just i couldn't think of the damn word yeah nothing is because all i even though you as soon as i hear wings i i think back about hank saying that she's a bird he's a cat and so it works on two levels she is a bird he is a cat Right, and that that's perfectly fine on the surface, but underneath, uh, he made her ascend with wings for a reason. And uh, yeah, I may just be off my rocker, <laughs> but I don't think so. Uh, and, and about if, about most things, maybe not about this. Yeah, you know, if I got this out of it, I think the average person who reads these things solely for superhero entertainment, if if I can get this much out of it, they're gonna love it. Because yes. it, it works on a purely gut level, 
with the booms and the big explosions and the widescreen, it works on that level. But it also works on other levels. And that's why I think that this series, you know, give me 10, 10 15 years. This series is going to go down as, if not, you know, the best. And it's going to be ranked up there with, with uh, Dark Phoenix. And I'm perfectly confident in saying that because I don't remember this much subtext in Dark Phoenix. <laughs> no, not at all. We can go back over this for hours and just marvel at Cassidy's art. Oh, God, yeah. Especially one of the last battles. When you look at, at Cassidy's depiction of, of the team in action, and and Cyclops definitely looks like he was drawn by John Severin. Wolverine's kind of all his own. He's, you know, that that's a Cassidy, Wolverine. It's not like he, he, he referenced another X-Men artist, but... I definitely see Paul Smith when I see Colossus. And there's not a lot of detail in Colossus's face. And Paul Smith was never big. He never needed detail. He was always very clean. He didn't need, you know, the cross-hatching or, 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 or just any special effects or special coloring. And you can definitely see in, in Colossus when Cassidy does a little bit of detail when, when Colossus has an expression or is making a face or is snarling or anything like that. I, I definitely pick up some Paul Smith. And again, I got to also mention Laura Martin, because if you do mention the coloring, the scene where Colossus is about to knock out danger and you see her reflection in his knuckles mm-hmm. and, and you just, all the little new, anything that's any, anything that's shiny. She, she just, she does a phenomenal job. I mean, we can go on and on about Cassidy's drawing of the team, but Laura Martin really brought her A-game to this series. Oh, yeah. And like you said, Cassidy put his personal stamp on Logan, but I think he made Kitty his own as well. I don't think I've ever seen Kitty rendered as faithfully from the first issue to issue 12. Yeah, he he I, seems yeah. to, like I said, either know her or he's he knows her in his mind because it's seamless when kitty's in a panel it's kitty like you know you'll you'll get an artist who no consistency the, right there's no i mean in panel 1 it could look like one person in panel 3 it could look like a totally different person every panel is kitty and he knows her from every angle which is i mean as an illustrator that's not easy to do and on the on the opposite side you have Whedon coming to this with as much strength as the artist without a doubt yeah it's and it's the little things he doesn't have to put these little wonderful little bits of dialogue in like when uh danger says that contradiction what does she say is the seed of consciousness it's a machine talking about contradiction and and you and and then you 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 know being an it dude how is binary data stored in ones and zeros Yep. You know, one is the contradiction of zero, and zero is the contradiction of one. So this this pers- this entity's consciousness is based on binary data, which is contradiction. I mean, it's amazing the shit that Whedon has in here. <laughs> in an X Men book, you don't you don't see that. No, 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 definitely not. So now that we've closed the book on this monumental twelve issue run, why don't we pop on over to the forum? to see what the listeners had to say about this. Let's. Yeah. Why don't you take it uh, Take it from the top? Oh, let's see. Okay. Well, first batter up, we had our buddy Mike in Portugal, who we heard last week, and um, 
basically, when uh, when asked about his thoughts on Astonishing X-Men and Whedon and Cassidy, um, his initial reaction is to make Joss Whedon a saint. He says, I keep repeating myself on this issue, but don't really care. I love the entire run by the creative team in Astonishing. Few people right now capture the essence of the X-Men like Whedon. Not only does he write incredibly well, he makes it feel like the X-Men are supposed to feel. Claremont in his better days does the same, but writers like Morrison, who did an incredible job, couldn't, in my opinion, make the X-Men sound, look, and feel like the X-Men. But I'm a whore for Whedon, not afraid to say, so I might be biased. Then we have the wonderful Cassidy. I actually remember exactly what I felt the first time I saw his work in the title. It was the first X-Men title that I was reading after years of being away from comics. One look left me flabbergasted, and the feeling stayed for the entire run up till now. Cassidy makes Kitty the best Kitty can be. What more can we ask for? Exactly. You, you can't ask for more from a mainstream comic. It just It's not going to happen. No. Yeah. Uh, and, and pretty much every point he made is, is pretty much spot on. Again, I have yet to read uh, the Morrison run. That's that's on route. And um, and and I'd agree with his assessment as far as Claremont goes. And and you know we've we've talked up Cassidy the entire topic. So yeah. Again, he's he's, he's spot on there. And he mentions that Whedon writes incredibly well. And it's amazing for me to realize this, you know, based on 12 issues of a comic book. So I'm so glad that I bought this hardcover and the subsequent issues. I'm caught up. I'm all caught up. And right. so now I'm going to give a little bit of attention to picking up Serenity and, and, and Firefly and... It's good stuff. If well, he, if he I can, haven't seen, I haven't seen the movie yet. I have the Firefly series on DVD, and I, I have the Serenity DVD, but I haven't watched it yet. Right. I'm a, I'm of the opinion if he could work characters that aren't his own this well, what can he do with his own properties? I mean, he wasn't involved in the creation of these characters from the X Men, and yet he knows them to the point where he can create a, a series so satisfying on a, on a whole bunch of different levels as this. What is he capable of with his own characters? <laughs> You'll like it. Oh, well, I'm, I'm hoping. Hello, delicious Dave. Hello, vivacious Vince. This is Jefferson. I just call him to say I'm really enjoying the program. You boys are really bringing back the sexy. So, make mine Marvelous. Good day. Our good buddy Darth Kramer. Comment. What's Matt got to say? Well, he said, as as David knows, I'll buy almost anything that has Whedon's name on it. That being said, I missed buying Astonishing X-Men for quite a while. But, but a few months ago, I had a Borders coupon burning a hole in my pocket. So I picked up the Astonishing X-Men hardcover, and I loved it. The first arc was the greatest X-Men story that I've read in probably my entire time of reading the X-Men. And I agree with you. The uh, characters were how I imagined them to be. The art was fabulous. The story was great. And most importantly, even though Wolverine was in the story, it wasn't the standard Wolverine guest starring the X-Men type book. I thought I'd hate the return of Colossus, but damn it, if old Joss didn't make it work. Just great stuff. The second arc I was less impressed with, as the story didn't seem to work for me at all. Well, 
Uh, no, but maybe he'll change his mind now. Maybe. But the characterizations in art were still fabulous. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'd give Astonishing X-Men hardcover a firm 8. I'd be happy with a firm 8. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, hell sure your yeah. wife would be, too. Hell, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and to reiterate, he did bring Colossus back in a tasteful, logical way. Much like um, Mr. Brubaker did with Bucky, and that's that's odd because resurrections of old characters, or I shouldn't say that, I should say deceased characters, who've been that way for a number of years, don't usually go over all that well. True. They're they're usually hackneyed or you know done to service an event. In this case, the storyline works, and it and it works well. Same with Bucky. Whoever thought that they'd be able to take Bucky back? I know. And, I know. It's and scary. Brubaker waltzed in there and, and, and just made it look easy. Bastard. I love him, too. <laughs> <laughs> what did our buddy Braxton have to say? Oh, man. Braxton used to be the best, but then, then he goes and says, I enjoyed the first several issues. Well, that's good. But didn't stay with the series for long. Now's where it turns dark. I fell victim to the whole too many X-Books to really enjoy one syndrome. I love the art of Cassidy. His rendering of Cyclops is one of my favorites. Alright, so he gets points for enjoying Cyclops, but but man, of, of all the, the X-Books to draw. But that's a pretty common thing as far as the X-Books go. I mean, there's so many of them and they, they just flood the market with goofball, you know, specials and and uh if I think I think if I see one more X-Men first year series like <laughs> it, it's it's unnecessary but I mean somebody's buying them and there is danger when you put out that much product it, it can't all be good and it just so happens that astonishing was the diamond in the poop you know, you can't fault the guy for overlooking it. He was playing it safe, and that's what you have to do. Hey, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. But you, there is there, there there are two trades and a hardcover out. So yeah, nah. get to reading. Braxton will make good on that. Oh yes. And Chris Chavez, aka Equinox, has something to say to Braxton as well. Uh, he says, "See," and I had a, exactly the opposite reaction to this book. I was dropping other X books left and right because I just wasn't satisfied with how the teams were being handled. Of course, mind you, the act of dropping the books was a long one that started off way back in the day when Morrison first started writing the new X-Men. When the first issue of Astonishing came out, it was like a breath of fresh air to me. I will admit to being a little bit of a style-over-substance punk ass, <laughs> because, because often I will follow creative teams that I find to have good-looking work over good, great writers paired up with average art teams. Yeah, me too. I'm the same way. Yes, you are. When, when I heard that Joss and John were going to be working on an all-new mutant book, I thought, great, because I had the hope that they could help get the X-Verse heading back on the right track. Fortunately for me and for everyone else, I was very right and very wrong at the same time. Dun, dun, dun. I, dun, dun, dun. I have commented before that my personal favorite X-Books of the last two years have been Astonishing X-Men and X-Men Deadly Genesis. Not surprisingly, both titles were doing the most they could do to completely ignore anything else going on in the standard Uncanny and New X-Men. 
I found this to be very refreshing because it allowed both series to focus on the individual characters involved in the books and how their personalities meshed or didn't mesh with their teammates or with anyone else in the nearby vicinity. As has been noted by others, these books didn't fall back on the tried and tired strategy of Wolverine and his uncanny ex-friends. That's, that's a common, it's a common statement. That is. I, people enjoy the fact that Wolverine is not the head honcho in these books. I do, too. Yes. Um, Wolverine and his un- uncanny ex-friends line of story, something that Bendis has not done in New Avengers either, and instead relegated him to the role of bit player in support of others. As I read through the stories of the first year, my astonishment, definite play on words there, was to find that characters such as Kitty Pride, Beast, and Emma Frost were taking center stage over their fellow mutants, and I didn't mind one damn bit. I think that the creative team for this book, while possibly surprising choice for some for a mutant action book, was quite literally a match made in heaven. Bravo. Joss Whedon is a wordsmith extraordinaire who can create whole worlds full of characters that live and breathe just as you and I do. But one of the things that we always forget is that in addition to creating the words that come from his characters' mouths, he also sets up the environments and situations that they live in. Not being familiar with his artistic skills, I'm assuming this is something that he relies on his directors of photography for in both television or film. This, of course, is where John Cassidy comes in. John's command of sequential art is second to none. Where others aspire to reach such heights on their own, merits, <clears throat> Greg Land, he makes the process look effortless. I compare John's work to a more fluid and graceful Kevin Maguire. Jesus. Hey. Did you read this before you... No. Which is high praise... I don't read the forum. Yeah, who the hell would do that? Which is high praise indeed, because I absolutely love Kevin's work, especially his original Justice League run. Combining the subtle nuances of John's art with the beautiful tapestry of words from Joss unites to form something rarely seen in comics, a true definitive run. That's quite poetic from our friend Equinox, but he's right. He's right. It is a match made in heaven. And, uh, you know... I was uh, tooling around on Newsarama past couple days, and wouldn't you know it, is Astonishing X-Men in continuity? And it was like, you know, your average bullshit, like, oh, I don't read it because it's not in continuity, and the other guy will come on and say, well, yes, it is in continuity, it's just, you know, in between continuity, and it's like, maybe two or three pages of this back and forth... (laughs) banter about you know is it or is it not and it doesn't really freaking matter if it is or it's not be thankful that this story exists at all don't care or cons- well don't it. concern yourself of you know where this takes point takes place on the timeline it doesn't matter what matters is that he has created an x-men story that works and works well. And it's not just one story. It's probably going to be like four by the time he's done. Or five, right. right? You know, it's not the destination. It's the damn journey. Yeah. You know. And it's a good one at that. Yeah. It's a hell of a journey. And that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to um, skim over Paper Cuts, our buddy Dan. But uh, basically, if we read his forum post we could have just done that for the show we a, lot should, of, a lot of great points there we should have done that 
would have saved us a hell of a lot of time. You know, you're right. I think we're going to have... Well, let's see, but he's always... Uh, he's the Around Comics research monkey, so um, we have to be careful with him, make sure we put him back in one piece. They don't uh, They don't loan him out too often. We'll clean him up when we're done. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> um, however, and, and everybody needs to go to the forum anyway and read what Dan wrote, because not only did he take the time to read it, um, it's it's written well. So, uh, so please, d- do that. There has been at least one person that wasn't overly thrilled with the run and or at least the first 12 issues and that is our buddy Scott Cedarland who does the Wednesday's Hall podcast and he says maybe being the voice of dissension but I think Whedon and Cassidy's Astonishing X-Men is only decent the threats are cheesy Ord, danger they seem to be big and dangerous because we're being told that they're big and dangerous Cassidy's art has ranged from only middling to pretty good. There are some clumsy page layouts, particularly in the Danger storyline. That said, I love what they're doing with Kitty and Peter. Kitty's reaction to finding Peter was wonderful and strong. Remember, this girl is a ninja, or something like that. Scott's certainly entitled to his opinion. I just I don't agree with it, but you, it just goes to show you, you can't please well, you, everyone. Right. Everybody gets something different out of something. Right. And you know, it's, we, 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 we were praising the page layout and how it's widescreen and how great it looks on the page. And Scott obviously wasn't a fan of the page layout. Right. But what you get out of these stories is proportional to how much you're willing to invest in them. If, if, if you pick up an X-Men book and read it on the bus coming home from work where you're distracted with the noise and the sounds and or or you you read it as a as a before bed treat you got to sit down especially with this book and really dig because yes. i think it's it's you're not going to find the nugget unless you do a little bit of digging absolutely yeah and um maybe you know scott give it another shot give it a try again maybe you'll like it better the second time if not hey i certainly respect your opinion buddy absolutely and after that, pretty much people just going um, back and forth on what others have already said. Um, so, again, we do thank everybody for participating on, in this thread and on the forums in general. Speaking of the forum, we have a, a neat little feature that we'd like you all to take advantage of. You probably uh, heard most of them this episode. I'm sure there was a lot of fast-forwarding through one of them. And you'll understand what <laughs> you'll understand what I'm talking about once you hear it. Um, but we do have a buzz line set up. Yes, you, we do. You, you can call us and leave us a message. And like I said on the forum, I will play everyone on the show. I will never ever edit for content, but I may tweak a little bit for time. Because you know, if you leave us a 30 minute message, do your own damn show. But you, <laughs> you can reach us at one eight eight eight. Six five four two two seven eight. That's one eight 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 six five four two two seven eight. Operators are standing by. When they ask you for the code, type in two eight five seven three six two eight five five. That's two eight five seven three six two eight five five. And the pin is five 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 five. Press two to save it after you're done with your message and. It'll work its way on over to our little inbox, and we'll play it on the show. And you can impress you can impress your friends that you're on a uh, that you're all grown up and you're on a podcast. You're, you're you're one of the cool folks now. Yeah, 
if you were on, you know, Adam Curry's podcast, then you can impress your friends. But yeah, I, yeah man, we're, we're not going to do it. But yeah, impress your mom. How about that? There you go. Hey, that's right. Oh, mom always wants to hear about their kids. Yeah. So lots of fun on the forums. Jump on over. Yes, the uh, we we have we have a new forum or new forum section called Ramita's Raiders, where we'd love to see your art. Your your convention sketches, your original pages, anything, anything art wise you may have accumulated over the years um, from from any conventions, any creators you might have gotten a sketch from. Uh, if you want to be like our pal Dustin and uh, post your own original art, which is, uh, you know, I, I look at it and it's great. I, I get a real kick out of out of what he's posting. It's it's good stuff. A lot of fun. Um, it really is. And. Um, and send us some links. And what I mean by that is once you register, you can uh, go ahead and submit links to us. If you have a favorite website regarding comic books, anything, you know, your favorite character has a website. If you created a, a an all-encyclopedia website of um, Aunt May's teacups, you know, just let us know. Submit the link to us. We'll, uh, we'll post it on the site. We'll have a page set up for fan submissions as far as listener submissions as far as links go. And I do want to give a shout out to a couple of new guys, uh, Dallin, Dallin Bumgarten, who's a, uh, who's a professional musician out West. He was, uh, he was nice enough to send us a, a great letter. And, um, and he is a, uh, he's a forum member now as is, uh, as is our pal Miggs who, uh, who made his way over from the comic geek speak forum. Yeah. We can't forget our buddy Cinch from Canada. That's right. A feisty Canadian if there ever was one, and a hell of a lot of fun. And he recently joined the forum, too. But getting back to that fan art thread you mentioned, I, I hope to hell somebody from Marvel is listening to this because I invite you to get your ass into that fan art thread and look at Dave Wachter's art. Oh. And snatch this puppy up before the other guys get him because this guy is as solid as some of your big names. He was who I was thinking of when I created the thread, and I says, "No, I says if, if anybody, I want Dave to be able to post something." And what was cool was that as soon as I knew that Dave was going to post something, I, I immediately remembered Pat Lakers sitting right next to him at Wizard World Chicago, and sure enough, Pat started posting some art. He, he posted his his uh, his originals and con sketches that he's accumulated over the uh, over the years. But as far as Dave goes. Dave's been posting some commissions and pinups, and please check him out at DaveDrawsComics.com. You can request a commission. You can uh, he'll get back to you as far as pricing goes, and I can tell you that you are going to get a huge bang for your buck. You cannot get a better value. The amount of money you spend on a sketch, on a commission piece, by by Dave. And it's it's well worth it. Yeah, it's, you can't you can't imagine how much you get for your money with Dave. Yep. Anybody from Marvel, put him on the Marvel Adventures books to start him off. You know, let him grow within the company. This guy is going to blow up big time. That thing drawing that he drew. Oh, oh I mean, it says I I see so much of Art Adams in his current work, and so much of Steve Dillon. He's just incredible, an incredible. I talent. would love to see a Daredevil by Dave. I don't think I've seen a Daredevil. No, now that you mention it, no. And and you're right, Pat Loika, another, just an amazing draftsman. These guys are so good. Snatch them up. Get some new blood into Marvel. That's what we need. Oh, we need good new blood. Yeah, maybe Tony Stark will clone Rob Liefeld. we got to watch out about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, brother, 
I think we got this one in the can. I think I, I think these 12 issues are done. Yeah, I wish we could do it all over again. I'd love to read it again. <laughs> I, I would. In fact, I'm going to sleep with this baby under my pillow tonight. Aww. Maybe maybe some of the greatness will, will seep through into my brain. If you are interested in this series, I would recommend picking up the deluxe hardcover. It collects issues 1 to 12 with a caboodle of variant covers in the back and and sketches and there's an interview with uh john cassidy in here where he uh reveals a little bit of his uh methodology on the se- on the series and a couple little easter eggs like for instance in the danger room sequence he inserted charlie brown in there where Did he? yeah i didn't catch that and and you know the only reason why i know about it is because it's in the it's in the back of the book here in the the part where the uh, danger turns it to the desert landscape right next to danger is a kid a bald-headed kid with two little hair sticking out and the old uh sawtooth pattern on the on the on the shirt yep charlie brown and he even says charlie brown thank you joss whedon and john cassidy for creating this and sure hope you guys work together again in the future when uh when uh you have the opportunity oh yes for vince b and for david come back next week and we'll do it again bye now